0: It's really good to be able to be here tonight, isn't it? To appreciate the blessing, the privilege, the opportunity that's ours. And we're so thankful God's been good to us to allow us to gather in this way. It certainly continues to be true that as we're thankful for these things, we always wish to worship our Heavenly Father in truth and in spirit. And of course, that's commanded of us in John four twenty four. And we've assembled tonight and we've prayed and we've sung together for the next few moments. Let's reflect on a section of the Word of God. In our hearing a moment ago was read for us from Matthew chapter 13. Let me invite you to revisit that chapter with me, and we'll look at only two verses from it. But oh, how fantastic is the teaching found within those verses. We're going to talk about mustard tonight. And as we do that, of course, you and I know well that mustard is something we can eat and often it tastes pretty good when it's coupled with a hot dog, a hamburger, many, many other things as well. But Lord had something different in mind than that. But as He talked about it, what rich teaching is found within it. These opening thoughts on this next slide bring us to at least a basic feature of chapter 13 in Matthew Matthew chapter 13 is sometimes called the parable chapter of the Bible. Seven parables are found in one chapter. Seven times the Lord made comparison of some earthly happenstance, some earthly occurrence with a rich and powerful spiritual meaning. One by one I've listed them for you, as you can tell everything from the parable of the sower of seed all the way to the parable of the net, all of them in this one chapter. Of course, our interest will be the third one that occurred. It's the parable of the mustard seed. And tonight, as we think a little bit about it, we're going to learn a great deal about the church. Jesus likened the church to a mustard seed. As He did that, isn't it interesting to reflect on the implications that the Lord made? And so it is. With that in mind, let's go to the next slide. Doing that, let's highlight the place of these parables. Jesus was the master teacher. All of those who strive to teach try to emulate him. He could teach with such greatness, often in such brief occurrences, and yet the lessons were so lasting, the lessons were so profound. Have you ever noticed the fact that in this very chapter, it's true the parable of the sower of the seed was a bit lengthier, but the parable of the mustard seed, two verses, that's it. Later on, the parable of the net in many ways was even shorter than that. And yet, what eternal truths were housed in such short presentations. Sometimes one doesn't need to be so wordy. Sometimes one doesn't need long, grandiose presentations. Often the truth can be presented in such direct, such powerful, and yet keen ways. You'll notice one more thing on that slide. The currents of this mustard seed at least appears to me to be perhaps statable in the following way. Have you ever noticed the movement through the chapter? The parable of the sower of the seed. In a moment we'll reflect on that one. But after that, the parable of the tares of the field. Again, as you think about the characteristics of each one of them, the mustard seed came third. I wonder if the Lord had an inspired and divine order of presentation. Why was the mustard seed not first? Why was the mustard seed not second? I'd submit to you the Lord had a reason for putting the mustard seed where He did. It's going to build upon some characteristics of the first two, and yet it'll pave the way for those that follow. Now again, Jesus was the master teacher. He did not do anything without appreciable consideration and thought and the divine recognition of what was best. For those reasons, look near the bottom of that slide. Jesus entered into his ship and there was a large crowd eager to hear what he had to say. You know, today, you and I often thrill at the thought, what if this church building were bursting at the seams because there were so many people interested, anxious, and eager to hear the teaching of the Bible and to hear and participate in a worship service to God? You and I know today that doesn't tend to be much of a problem. It's not as if folks are bursting down the doors trying to get in. It seems their attention is somewhere else. Their interests are elsewhere. But on this occasion, people were hungering for the Word of God. Jesus entered into a ship, and He sat down. And you can imagine in your mind's eye the appreciation. Here was the crowd on the bank, and Jesus was a little distance from shore. He was teaching them these great and powerful truths. On this slide, notice again what parable came first. The sower of the seed. Now you and I remember there were four kinds of soil. There was a wayside soil, and as this sower went forth to sow, some of the seed fell on that place. It's much like a sidewalk, if you please. And the ground was so hard that it wasn't really able to grow much, and the birds of the air came by and got that seed. Jesus said that's like people's heart who hear the word, but it doesn't bring forth anything because the devil takes it away before it can do so. You and I have got to be mindful that as we hear the Word of God, to always allow it to germinate, to allow us to consider what it is that's said and not for it to pass out of our heart before it does any good. But there was another kind of soil known as stony ground here. You remember it was encumbered with rocks and stones and the plant did come forth. But you and I remember that when the times got challenging and difficult and under the duress of persecution, that plant withered away for it didn't have enough moisture. So too here, Jesus said, this is like those people's heart. who they perhaps begin the Christian walk, but under persecution, they don't have the wherewithal to stand. They wither away. You and I can't be like that. We've got to be steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight, And that steadfastness is encouraged upon you and me all throughout the pages of the Word of God. Although the Lord said it with respect to the destruction of Jerusalem, it in the principle a potent one, he that endureth to the end shall be saved, Matthew ten twenty It is to that we might add the third soil. This one was infested with thorns. And sure enough, the plant came forth, but there were so many thorns. And you and I remember those thorns choked it out, and therefore it became unfruitful. Those thorns represented the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of the world, according to Luke chapter 8. And isn't it amazing? One good soil was the fertile ground. As the seed was sown in it, that plant came forth, and it brought forth abundantly. Some thirty-fold, some sixtyfold, some a hundred-fold. At this point, may I ask you to reflect on this. Of the soils, which one was the only positive one? You and I know that answer well. It was the fertile ground, but per- proportion-wise, how much was it? One in four. One in four. That seems so negative. Was the Lord telling us that for every seed of the gospel sown, at most... One in four will bring forth good soil, will bring forth the kind of fruit that would be a faithful New Testament Christian. I would submit to you in some areas, perhaps even one in four would be a good percentage. So many seem so disinterested in the Bible, so uninterested in the church, the, what happened at the cross, and anything attached to life after death. May I say that if that negative consideration was the case for that one, turn your attention to the parable of the tares of the field. This was the second parable in the chapter. Jesus, in fact, reminded us that in this parable, one went forth to sow. But as he did, an enemy came at night and put tares along with the good seed. And so, you and I recall that the tares looked a lot like the wheat and therefore the servants couldn't tell the difference. But the time came, they could recognize it, and they asked, where'd the tares come from, didn't you sow good seed? And of course the master said, an enemy's done this. They quickly asked, do we need to root up the tares now? And he said, no. You leave them be until the time of harvest, and then I'll separate the chaff from what's good, and I'll burn the tares, but I'll let, of course, that good seed be put in the barn, You and I had a lesson not many months ago in which we looked at that parable in some detail and we noticed that it had to do with the church. In the church, there are those who appear to be the good seed, but they're not. Their heart really is not in it. Remember, that was referring to the kingdom and the kingdom's the church. And these two things were both in the kingdom, both the tares and the good seed. You and I need to not be the tares; those who have the pretense of doing what's right, but really we don't. Our life isn't what it ought to be. Did you notice two parables then, and both strongly make reference to what's negative. No wonder the mustard seed is next. We need something positive. We need something reminding us of the grandeur and the greatness of the church. The fact that it shall stand to the end of time and that it shall never, ever fail to be what the God of heaven wished it to be. It is with that in mind, let's close that slide and let's come to the mustard seed. The church is likened to it and so let's first note the earthly story. What is the circumstance described by our master here and then we'll devote some attention to reflecting on the spiritual lessons that go with it. Even though it was read earlier, Brother Greg read it for us. Let's read again, verses 31 and 32 of Matthew chapter 13. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof." and that's it. Brief, to the point, but how beautiful. You'll notice then this particular scenario is easy to imagine. Perhaps you and I have seen a mustard seed. The text informs it's a very small thing. In fact, verse number 13 says it's the least of all seeds. Now let's be aware of the following. At the bottom, I've tried to provide you some information about typical mustard seed let's begin in the following way it is safe to say that mustard is a very cherished herb as far as I can tell by research all around the world it seems as though nearly every culture cherishes and values mustard now many times it's prepared different ways some places it's hot and spicy in other places here in America it's pretty and yellow but it's not terribly spicy Other places, it is combined with various things, and it often makes a very tasty base for many things. Some of that's beside the point, admittedly. But isn't it true that as you look at the kind of mustard likely under consideration in the eastern part of the world, it's likely the brassica nigra. Probably is the most common mustard in that Palestine area. Maybe that was what the Lord had in mind. Suffice it to say this, whether it be that plant or others, the seeds are extremely small. In fact, you can put about 13 or 14 of them side by side, and it'll only make about an inch. Very small compared to many other seeds. It is with that in mind, I might ask you to note this. The Lord wasn't saying that this was literally the smallest possible seed. There are other plants that have smaller seeds, what he was saying, though, is that for those things that are taken as edible, the mustard is the smallest of those seeds from which plants are grown that yield what's commonly ingested. And that's true. The mustard seed is the smallest of that category. Isn't it interesting, then, as you reflect upon it? This parable of, is intending to teach something rather dramatic. Did you note again the first words of verse number 31? Another parable put He forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven. Whatever the Lord is teaching, it has to do with the kingdom of heaven. He wasn't merely delivering a biology lecture about mustard plants, and He wasn't delivering a circumstance that otherwise had political information. This was about the church, because the church is the kingdom. What is it about the church that's likened to a mustard As you and I come to the bottom of that slide, it transitions quickly to this one. The heavenly meaning is now time for our consideration. May I suggest several items which appear directly to come before us, ideas which are encouraging, ideas which quite frankly buoy our faith as we give thought to how a mustard plant can appropriately be informational concerning the church It begins like this. Remember that mustard seed is extremely small compared to many. And yet upon planted and when properly considered, it results in a bush and an herb tree large enough that even birds can rest in its branches. Jesus on one level was teaching that something that would begin small would blossom and bloom and grow and develop into what was so dramatically large by comparison. I've given you some information about that. I suppose there are many who might think that something that would begin from something that small might be fragile, it might be frail, it might be unable to sustain under difficulties, and it might be unable to survive under a powerful character of duress and persecution. Jesus says, not so. The organization, namely the church, that would begin this small, it will grow. It will flourish. It will develop. It will mature. All of the fiery darts of the devil will not be able to take it away. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 16? The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. Now you and I would be quick to say the church did begin small. Wouldn't you agree there were twelve men that started it? In the sense that after Jesus ascended back to the Father, it was they on the day of Pentecost who were powerfully commissioned by the God of heaven to bring forth the great character of what the church would be that day. And those apostles were critical figures in that early church. Didn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians 12 verses 28 and following, the Lord set the apostles first. They were a powerful foundation upon which much was to develop. But let's note this. Twelve men, and they were mere fishers, at least many of them were. There was a tax collector in the bunch. There was a zealot in the bunch. You wouldn't say they were towering figures that drew your attention by way of strength or other development. Rather, they were extremely weak in many ways. It's fair to say. Nonetheless, from that very small group, this great organization known as the church developed. May you and I be constantly impressed with the church that it began in that way. In fact, I've asked you to notice in Acts chapter 2 verses 1 and following, even the beginning of the church was a meager thing. It was the day of Pentecost and, of course, individuals and the Jews that had gathered that day. But remember, there were many peoples on earth who weren't Jews. But you and I know that what began on that day, not many years thereafter, would ultimately encompass not only the Jews but the Gentiles alike. And sure enough, that which began so small grew so mighty. I've asked you to notice, in fact, some particular verses that highlight that growth and how rapid was that expansion. Could we begin in Acts chapter 2 when we're told that about 3,000 obeyed the gospel that day. Now that number, 3,000, two chapters later you'll notice 2,000 more are rapidly added. One by one, as individuals heard that gospel, the Word of God says it like this, the Word of God mightily grew and prevailed. That adverb mightily means with excessiveness and with abundance. And the church was growing all across the Roman Empire. It perhaps would be fair to say, in Colossians 1.23, this dramatic statement is found. Maybe you've often thought about what this statement means. And it's not the only place it's found in the New Testament. Every creature under heaven had heard the gospel. Now remember, that was only written a little over 30 years after the Lord's resurrection. In 30 years, those New Testament Christians had blazed the Roman Empire with the gospel of Christ. Sure enough, that which had grown beginning as a mustard seed had blossomed to, in fact, take over all the Roman Empire. Amazingly enough, not many years thereafter, in fact, Christianity became the state religion of the Roman Empire. That empire that had been so idolatrous and that had been so difficult in terms of initial persecution, it actually came to the point of embracing Christianity. Even the Roman Emperor became a Christian. Isn't that something to behold? May I submit to you as you and I close that slide, it brings us to yet another lesson. For not only could we remark about that dramatic growth, something else is said in verse number 32. It says, "...which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs." Let's pause there for just a moment and note this. Doesn't your mind race in some ways back to the days of Daniel in the Old Testament? There you might recall that Nebuchadnezzar had a very memorable dream, and in that dream were these various metallic parts of that image. But there was one more thing to notice. There was a stone in that dream. The stone crushed into that image in its lower sections, and you'll notice something is said about the stone. It grew and became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Notice there's an increasing growth from a stone to what fills the whole earth. May I submit to you that highlights this mustard seed. What started so small grew so large. And today, the church, of course, is on every continent. People everywhere have access to that gospel. One doesn't have to be in Jerusalem. One doesn't have to be in Damascus or some other Palestinian city. The church is known worldwide. But maybe there's one aspect of this parable that still seems a bit troubling. As the Lord has highlighted this growth, one thing you and I have come to appreciate, the Lord chose His words wisely. And He didn't use what was not pertinent to the teaching. Verse 32 ended like this. It is the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Now, we've highlighted the growth, and the Lord could have highlighted that if He'd never mentioned the birds. But the fact He mentioned the birds near the end of verse 32 leads us to believe maybe the Lord had something else in mind. What would the teaching be characteristic of these birds? Let me make to you a suggestion, and as you've studied it, or perhaps as you reflect upon it, what do you think about this? Notice that the appearance of the birds came after the mustard seed had grown into this very large tree. And it's that tree that it is said that birds were able to lodge in its branches. Other times in the Bible, you and I encounter birds and sometimes they are very innocent creatures and they are hallmarks of God's majestic creation. That was true in Genesis chapter 1, wasn't it? On other occasions, birds, however, are mentioned with a different connotation. In Revelation 18, they clearly are mentioned like this. Every hateful and corrupt bird... Now their birds are mentioned, but they're mentioned with a connotation of what's untrue. They're mentioned with what flits about and is not connected to the unwavering truth of God. You and I know as birds fly in the air, they move about with such ease. They go from here to there, and sometimes we're even told in Matthew 24, like eagles, they can act like scavengers. They consume what's corrupt and putrid. In Revelation 18, these hateful birds are ultimately lost. And they have influence over others, but influence its not for good. They appear to be teachers that are false teachers. They're teachers that are motivated by things other than the truth of God. And these teachers are such that they truly are corrupt. And they truly do often that which is hateful with regard to the things of God's majesty and truth. In fact, aren't we told in 2 Peter chapter 2 about those kinds of influences? May I submit that maybe that was the Lord's impression here. There will be false teachers in the church. Even though this mustard seed will have grown into this large tree, and even though it truly is a great thing, It's also possible that these corrupting influences can even find their way into it. That has happened through the centuries, you know. I might submit you and I have got to be vigilant, dedicated, and devoted to the truth of God so that we keep falseness at bay. Wasn't Paul a master in light of that consideration? He knew very well about the evils of Alexander the coppersmith. He's done me much evil, Paul said. May the Lord reward him for what he's done. Paul hoped that man would be saved, but he knew in his current state he wouldn't. Paul called him by name. He wasn't the only one. You remember Hymenaeus and Alexander in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Here were individuals, and now 20 centuries of time have recorded their names, among the hallmark of those that were against God. Today there still are those who do not preach the truth. You and I could list names like Joel Osteen. Though there may be twenty or 30,000 or more that assemble to hear him preach, it's sad to think the message he delivers is not consistent in all its fullness with the Word of God. He is only one among so many others that might be listed. You and I have been given by God His truth, and even though there are the influences of these hateful and corrupt birds, you and I know that we can identify them. Didn't Jesus say, you shall know them by their fruits? Matthew 7 verse 20. Sure enough, we have the pattern alongside which we can compare that which is taught, and we can identify what's false. As you look near the bottom of that slide... May I submit, it seems to me, you and I can draw at least one more lesson from this. And one that's very personal. It comes directly to you and to me. And therefore, in this sense, every one of us are challenged. What is it about my faith and yours? Is my faith like that of the mustard seed, which although it may have started small, has it remained that way? God wants our faith to grow to mature, to develop, to increase. And wasn't it the apostles who pleaded with the Lord, increase our faith, Luke 17, 1. If your faith or mine, it's not a sin for it to have started small. But if it stays that way, if it has never grown and developed, if I'm still the immature one that I was 20, 30 years ago, that fault is mine. Isn't it true in 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 1, we're admonished to desire the sincere milk of the Word, that you may grow thereby. You see, it wasn't wrong for Peter's hearers to start small. That perhaps would be expected. But we've got to grow as we allow the Word to rest at our heart, and as we allow that Word to alter our thinking and our speech and our conduct. Sure enough, in 2 Peter 3.18, it reads, Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Growth. I've asked you to consider some verses. Maybe you and I should keep in mind, the Bible does make a description of varying levels, if you please, of faith. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, referred to little faith. Little faith. I don't want that kind of faith, do you? I don't want the Lord to be able to look upon me and say, You've got a little faith, but by now it should have been a lot more than that. This little faith of Matthew six verse thirty reminds us of Matthew eight twenty six. I've always thought that was a very telling scene. You recall that this centurion came to Jesus and pleaded with him in regard to the healing of, of that centurion servant. But isn't it true? Ultimately, by way of discussion, the centurion said, you don't even need to come to my house. I've got confidence in you. You give the word where you are and I know that he'll be healed. Jesus said, I haven't found such great faith, no, not in Israel. Jesus recognized this person's faith is a lot more than what I've even found among the Jews this person had full confidence that I could heal that person and not even have to go there. Today, where does your faith and mine rest on this scale of faith? Is it still minor and weak when it by now should have been much greater? May I submit reminds us of a mustard seed, because on another occasion didn't Jesus say this, if you had faith even as the faith of a mustard seed... You could say to this mountain, Be thou cast into the sea, and it'd be done. Jesus said there, even if our faith is like that of a mustard seed, notice again we're back to mustard, then our faith could be recognized by God with such sufficiency. Where's your faith and mine tonight? Is it small when it by now could have been bigger? Or is it small because it's merely growing and perhaps it's not unreasonable for it to be small? I hope tonight we can each analyze ourselves and come near to the bottom of that slide and be impressed again with the Bible's word of growth. Tonight, as we have studied about mustard, let's close our lesson like this. I hope every time you and I eat mustard from now on, we'll think about the Bible's reference to it some great truths in it that not only relate to the church and how that the church started so small but grew into something universal. It also has teaching even with respect to your faith and mine. A faith that needs to be mature. Not like a tiny mustard seed, at least by itself always that way, but that which can grow. And just as the Bible teaches us, that's what pleases our Heavenly Father. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 to 14, the Hebrew writer closes that chapter and says, For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. And are become such as have need of milk, and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskilful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even to those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. One more passage encouraging us along our development of faith. Tonight, as we extend our invitation, we do so and use the mustard one more time. Because as we do that, it asks us the very pertinent and personal question, how is your faith and mine? If there's anyone in the audience that needs to respond publicly, maybe you've never become a Christian. Maybe you've never responded positively to that gospel's call of invitation. If we could help you do that tonight, realize the Lord commanded you must believe in Him absolutely fully as a Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name, and then be buried with Him in baptism for the remission of sins. If you've done that, and maybe you've begun that journey in which your faith was growing, but you've taken some steps backward... That seed has gone back to its initial state of being so small, maybe now it's almost imperceptible. You know you can make those changes. Just like we learned this morning, don't stay one more night with the frogs. Why not answer the Lord's invitation tonight? And if we could be of help to you at this moment, while we stand and sing this song of invitation, we would encourage you to come and do it at once while together we stand and sing.